Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street! Five, four, three, two, one. Back in the Masson Web Studio, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Bobby Blanco and Amy Jennings joining you after a week off last week. Apologies for that. That's 100% on me. <laughs> had some health issues dealing with uh, in my close quarters, so I uh, had to make sure everyone was safe and healthy uh, before coming back in and putting Amy and producer Brendan Mortensen at risk before the holidays. I could not live with myself if I got you guys sick a week before Thanksgiving and then also had some car issues. It was all a whole show. Bluff week was a rough week for your boy, but I am back <laughs> two days from Thanksgiving and I'm happy to be here. I told Bobby last week, he texted me about being sick and then he said he had a flat tire and I was like, Bobby, the third thing is coming. Yeah. So you need to watch out because all bad things come in threes. Yes. But so far, so good here. Yeah, well, I counted my me and my fiance getting sick as two. That's right. That's and then right. flat tire makes three. So each of us we, were we, sick. We got through it. We got, got through, through the three. The but you went on a trip and I didn't know you were on a trip. Yeah, you did. No, I, I, I told you know. I was going to New Orleans. Mm-mm. Yeah, well, so we were in New Orleans uh, for my fiance's brother's, older brother's wedding. Oh, okay. Great time, a lot of fun. It was colder down there than we had planned for. It, yeah, we, how it cold was, is it this time of year down there? It's not, uh, it's a little warmer than, it, it was like in the fifth, well, no, I shouldn't say that. The day we got in, it was warm. It was like 70 degrees, and that's what we thought we were getting, right? And the, we went on this boat ride, you know, one of those big steamboats down the Mississippi um, on Saturday afternoon, and it was like in the 50s and windy. And we were not prepared for that. We were not properly bundled up. And I think that's where we got sick. Just a little yeah. cold, a little head cold real quick uh, and shook that off for a couple of days. But New Orleans, fun city. Oh, Bourbon Street no. was cool. Um, everyone's so nice down there. Uh, really good time. If you have a chance, it was my first time. I've never been there before. If you have a chance, go down there. It was a lot of fun. Um, but everyone is now healthy, ready for the holidays, safe, uh, back home, tires fixed, cars ready to go. And because we missed last week, we have a jam-packed episode. Uh, lots to get to, some housekeeping stuff. Um, we're going to talk about the Arizona Fall League guys that we've been teasing for a couple weeks now that this season has wrapped up. We have some final numbers to go through and talk about with them. Of course, some players were added to the 40-man roster on Friday to protect them from the Rule 5 draft. Uh, so lots to get to uh, over the next uh, 45 minutes or so uh, for this podcast. And um, before we get to that, though, we do... Oh, hopefully you're tuning in live on the Mass Nationals YouTube channel and or Facebook page, or if not... What are you doing? Please watch us. We set all this up for you guys to watch and comment along and join the episode. Mm-hmm. But if not, hopefully you're catching us after the fact on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and or SoundCloud. First things first, congratulations are in order to the Washington Spirit, mm-hmm. the women's soccer team, winning their first championship. Of course, an unprecedented, tumultuous season for them and that franchise and the N- NWSL. National Women's Soccer League, um, a whole bunch of controversy and stuff going on with that league and this team in specific. But for them to rally around, show some, go through so much adversity, uh, really focused and determined to win a championship in such a dramatic fashion. I don't right. know if you watched any of the game. I watched the most of the entire game. I saw highlights. I didn't watch the game, but 
it was nerve wracking, but it was very exciting. Congratulations to the Spirit for their championship, bringing home another uh, trophy to the District of Champions. And it's been awesome to see all the Twitter videos, like all the celebrations, the dances. It's really awesome to see just how excited they are and their celebration, well deserved. And if you haven't seen those videos, go on Twitter right now and watch them because they're hilarious. Kelly O'Hara of uh, the National Women's Soccer Team fame scoring the game winning goal off a great pass from one of the best rookies in, in, in the whole entire league. She was Rookie of the Year. Um, and just an incredibly dramatic goal to, to in the 100th in the and I think the 97th minute, actually, to put the spirit up 2-1, to one, which was the final score. So uh, there will be another parade in D.C. We're parade people now. That's very exciting. They said they're going to have that parade beginning of their next season, so they had time to plan, and everyone can enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean... It's 2021, starting back with the Caps run in 2018. That is the Capitals, the Mystics, if you want to count the uh, the Valor as the uh, Arena Football <laughs> League Championship. Of course, the Nationals and now uh, the Spirit. That's five championships the in the Wizards last three years. Ha- well, we were off to a really great start. Yeah. Now it's still a half-decent start. So, And the football team has now won two in a row. I know. Things are looking up in D.C. We'll just, yeah, we'll just uh, count our blessings while they're here. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll see what happens. There. But congratulations again to the Spirit, all those players. I know it was not easy. It was not an easy season. So happy to see them be able to celebrate a championship. And it was also really cool. You mentioned seeing all the videos that they were posting, but also really cool seeing all the other teams in the, in the area posting and celebrating with them. The Nationals being one of them, at Nationals on Twitter, uh, celebrating with them and posting congratulations, yeah, promoting watch parties for that thing. So that was really cool. I love, 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 love when all the teams in the area get together and support one another. Of course, we've seen friendships uh, be created between the Nationals and the Capitals, mm-hmm. the Wizards as well, um, the football team. So it's it's been really exciting to see them support uh, the other, uh, you know, the Mystics and the Spirit as well, and, like, and all them coming together. I like to see that. Like you saw uh, Scary Terry at the Wizards yep. game uh, just a few days ago. So to see the, those teams support each other yep. is fun. Um, so one more housekeeping thing of note: this came down last week. Then we, did, of course, did not get a chance to talk about. But Dejon Watson named the new director of player development for the Washington Nationals. He gets a promotion. He's been uh, with the Nats for the past five seasons uh, as a special assistant under Mike Rizzo. The two seasons prior to that, he was the senior vice president of baseball operations for the Diamondbacks. And then eight seasons before that, he was basically the head at some point, either as an assistant role or the actual head of the Dodgers player development season. We know how great the Dodgers system has been for so long so he had a a, a hand in ha- promoting and, and developing those players and scouting them and then he has a long history of being a scout in major league baseball i think his first scouting year came in 1991 so his career as a scout is almost is older than i am in age mm-hmm. which is is impressive so a guy that had mike rizzo obviously trusts being promoted to director of player development and you know we know mike rizzo's Background in scouting, we know how much he trusts scouts and relies on scouts. Yes, we have the analytical numbers, but he really relies on scouts' eyes that he trusts. And Dejon Watson is we one of those guys that gets a promotion and an important time for this franchise as the rebuild gets underway. Right, and we're talking a lot about promotions and kind of moving guys around within the national system. I think we kind of expected there to be um, new blood, if you will, some new hirings fresh sets of eyes coming into this organization, but it seems like they're promoting a lot of guys or moving people around into new positions. And I think, you know, there are definitely some pluses to that because not only does he have the familiarity with Mike Rizzo, with this entire organization, and that's going to be his job taking over the minor leagues 
um, in a kind of a transitional period, which is really important. Um, but then, of course, he also has that track record um, with the Dodgers farm system, was implemental and in developing a lot of players there. Um, the Dodgers were one of the first teams to use TrackMan in their player mm -hmm. development um, and he was there during that time. So the track record between the Dodgers and his seven, eight years there overseeing their player development. And then, of course, with the Nationals now, I think that's kind of a good sign. Um, I didn't necessarily I kind of expect them to hire somebody new into this position, but they're kind of moving things around. And I guess that, you know, just goes to show how much Mike Rizzo, you know, respects or puts value into to Watson's role. Well, to that point about you expecting maybe an outside hire, I'm, I'm actually you know, if I'm looking at this from an objective point of view, I'm actually like, or a fan point of view, I'm kind of glad it's coming from within because mm -hmm. this is a guy, like, it's not just he hasn't been here for one or two seasons or an outside hire. He's been here for five years. So exactly. a lot of the young players that we're going to see coming up through the next couple of seasons, he had some kind of hand in scouting, mm -hmm. drafting, developing once they're in the system. So it's important for, in my mind that he's now in this role where he's, overseeing the entire minor league system and the development of those players. And it's such an important time for this team. And, you know, he is already very familiar with these guys. Exactly. He's been around for five years. So you go back five drafts or so, you know, he's been around these guys, international signing periods. Um, I'm sure he'll work very closely with Mike DiPuglia in that department. Uh, so it, I think that is some, there's something to be said of, yeah, you're right. Mike Rizzo values his people, you know, he, mm -hmm. he identifies his people and, and keeps them around for a long time. Um, and there's another example that he's been around for five seasons. Mike trusts him. He's going to put him in this important role and kind of, you know, this is, you know, you, you as a general manager, I would imagine you would want to put people in these positions so you don't have to worry about it, right? right? Like that's, this is something that now maybe can be a little bit off of Mike Rizzo's plate where you don't have to worry too much about the player development. He can focus really on the major league roster. Like he spoke, that's one of his top priorities, if not the top priority. And he now trusts Watson to oversee the entire minor league system and report to him whatever he needs to know. Right. And that's super important as they're trying. You can kind of see what they're trying to do here yeah. is create this continuity between the minor leagues and the majors um, and putting guys like this who are familiar with the system, familiar with what the nationals are doing here uh, is really important in doing that when they're, you know, trying to develop these guys, trying to re replenish their farm system. That's going to be really important to have guys knowing what they're doing. And you can kind of see that they're trying to move players around that, that, so that they can work towards that goal in a transitional time for this organization. And we were, you know, we had speculated for what the first month and a half now of the off season of how this front office would reshape. You know, we saw mm -hmm. changes in the coaching staff. Of course, there's still going to be some changes to the roster, but Mike Rizzo saying on the last day of the regular season that, you know, they're going to do a whole overview and overhaul of this front office to kind of go inside side by side with this rebuild. And we were wondering what that meant. And here's a big domino to fall. And if, you know, this is a big moving piece where Dejon Watson is now getting full control of the or oversight, I should say, of the player developmental side and the minor league system. And that, you know, again, like I said, I think that's going to take some off of Mike Rizzo's plate. Of course, he's still going to be well informed and keep an eye on the minor league system, especially now as, you know, they go through year full, the first full season of this rebuild, reboot, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but having someone he trusts knows the players is going to take a lot of heat off of Mike Rizzo. And I think it's just going to make, a, you know, the whole process of whatever else they have to right. do in terms of revamping this front office that much easier because we're probably going to see other people who have been around for a while also get slight bumps mm -hmm. up or take on more responsibilities um, and it's going to be just a more cohesive unit and not you're not going to need to do that you know 
here's your first day as a national scout. You know, here's what you need to know. No, these guys have been around for a while and know these players. And it, it's that's one less step you kind of get rid of. Exactly. And it's just an easy transition. Yeah, I mean, the director of player development roles specifically important for the nationals because of the position that they're in right now going through this rebuild. Whoever oversees their minor league system is has a pretty important role in this rebuild. And I think having that rapport with the organization, having that rapport with Mike Rizzo is really important. Um, and that's why you're seeing that across the organization. So that's something that happened over the last week that we didn't get a chance to talk about, but a pretty significant hire mm. um, as they're kind of changing the shape of this front office as a whole. Yeah, he'll be a name that you'll probably hear a lot over the course of the next couple of seasons uh, on podcasts on massinsports.com and other references to the articles mm -hmm. now that we're going to be focusing a lot more on the minor league system than the major league club as they kind of try to retool this whole thing and revamp it and you know take this once top ranked farm system now lower ranked farm system back to where it used to be just a couple of seasons ago through the draft through the international signing period through the development of uh, of these young players, trades, whatever it may be. Um, so something to keep an eye on, a name to remember moving forward as we go through the course of this retooling. Speaking of which, retooling, there's some additions to uh, the 40-man roster. Friday was the uh, deadline to protect players from the Rule 5 draft. Here is a look at the 40-man roster. It is almost packed full, 39 spots, leaving one spot open. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But the additions that they made on Friday, outfielder Donovan Casey, who, of course, was the last player, uh, one of the last players mentioned or brought over from the Dodgers in the uh, Max Scherzer and Trey Turner deal in July, and left-handed pitcher Evan Lee. Those guys are protected from the Rule 5 draft. They will not be uh, left available for other teams to select. And I, I think the Donovan Casey, they're both kind of no-brainers in my mind. I, I think we were both surprised Maybe not surprised. I mean, I was surprised, but just interested that they only chose to select two. There's a long mm -hmm. list of guys that they could have selected, and we'll get to kind of the reasons why we thought they only selected two in just a bit. But first thoughts, I mean, it's pretty. these two are pretty obvious guys to protect, especially Casey having just traded for him. Yeah, when you're looking at the list of those top prospects that were Rule 5 eligible, I think Donovan Casey and Evan Lee were the, the two that stood out to me that I kind of assumed they would protect. The rest are options, but really the rest were didn't get above high A and were kind of... I don't think that there was necessarily a point in adding them to the 40-man because the chances of them getting taken in the Rule 5 draft were pretty low. But these are two guys, I mean, you know, just, just glancing at it, Donovan Casey, of course, getting in that, getting him back in that Dodgers trade, you don't want to give him up quite just yet. I mean, that completely decreases the value of that trade. Um, nationals are probably going to need an outfielder. He can play all three outfield spots. Um, it kind of you know, would it make sense not to protect him? You might as well. And then Evan Lee has good stuff, was probably the best pitcher on this this list. He's a lefty. Um, I think there was certainly a risk that he would be getting taken in the Rule 5 draft, especially, you know, out of just these specific pitchers. Um, he was the most likely. So I think these two kind of no-brainers, um, and they are, you know, kind of stick ahead of the rest of those guys that were Rule 5 eligible. Yeah, and, and Donovan Casey, in his instance, of course, we mentioned he – was just traded for so you don't want to like get rid of that piece or risk losing that piece but he's also probably the one guy out here that's most major league ready now remember if a player is selected in the rule five draft that team that selects him has to keep him on their active roster for the entire entirety of the next season if not they have to risk giving him back to the team that they selected him in the draft from um and donovan casey has been on the 
cusp of becoming, you know, making that debut with the Nationals over the last couple of seasons or a couple of months of the season, excuse me. We, we kind of wondered if he might be an option to come up in September uh, with Victor Robles being sent down. But of course, Lane Thomas's emergence kind of nicks that need. Um, he, you know, he, he, between Rochester and Harrisburg, he showed flashes, uh, not outstanding numbers, way better at double A. Mm-hmm. And we got the promotion in triple A, wasn't fantastic, 179 over 38 games uh, with Rochester, uh, but did, was able to uh, hit 16 home runs over the course of the season between um, LA and Washington. And then in the, in the Arizona Fall League, a little bit better, 255, just 13 games, did hit 10 RBIs and uh, walked eight times as many times as he struck out. So that mm-hmm. kind of showed a little more play discipline for Casey in the Arizona Fall League. But like I said, he is someone that was on the cusp of probably being major league ready. He would have been a risk to someone to take him because any team who might need an extra outfielder, something like that probably would have t- maybe taken a chance on him, especially knowing how much the Nationals valued mm-hmm. him and how much the Dodgers valued him by including him in that trade. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned that he came over. He only played 12 games at AA, but he hit pretty well, 347 with a 956 OPS, then got b- bumped up to AAA, and his OPS dropped to 536 and 38 games at AAA. So definitely didn't hit as well at AAA, but you mentioned, you know, Get, you take a guy in a Rule 5 draft, he has to stay up mm-hmm. with your team all year. And he's really, Donovan Casey's the only one on this list as far as uh, hitters go that did make it to AAA in this season. So you're you're more apt to take a guy like that who you know can at least kind of face that pitching versus compared to these guys who didn't play above single A. So I think that does make it a big difference. But you mentioned that power, that plus bat speed. Um, he certainly, you know, he, he draws his walks, did much better yeah. in the Arizona Fall League. And you kind of saw that even though it was a small small sample size. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Baseball America listed him as the, na- the best athlete in the Nationals farm system. Um, he definitely catches some eyes. And I think you could see him on this Nationals roster as soon as uh, this coming season because they're probably going to need an outfielder and he can play all three positions, which I think is huge. He is, uh, and ends, ends the season as the 18th ranked prospect in the national system, according to MLB Pipeline. You go down three more spots and at number 21 is Evan Lee. The left-hander who also participated in the Arizona Fall League. Now, it's interesting, though, because he has not pitched above high A. He was with Wilmington all this season. Uh, pitched pretty well. A, a, a 432 ERA went 4-3 and three in 20, uh, 21 games, 20 starts. Uh, struck out a bunch. Uh, gave up a couple home runs, six home runs. Uh, kept the walks down, only 32 walks over those games. So, pretty impressive there. And then struggled a little bit in the Arizona Fall League. Again, small sample size. So, take it with a grain of salt. But... I think that was more so just giving him some more innings mm-hmm. as opposed to, uh, you know, seeing what he could actually do. And we talked about there's a slight risk of the guys that are Rule 5 eligible playing in the Arizona Fall League because if they do really well, they, you know, maybe draw some uh, some attention from some scouts. Um, but he is kind of younger. He was a – he's only 24. He'll be 25 next June. Uh, he was the 15th round pick back in 2018. Um, I I think, like you said, the, the stuff that he has the potential – Probably would have maybe drawn some up, but it would have been tough, I think, for a major league team to carry him for a full season unless they were just totally in a full reboot right. and just threw him in the bullpen. Right. I don't think, you know, I don't think that he necessarily would have gotten taken, but he does have good stuff. And I think that puts him at a risk. 104 strikeouts and only 77 innings is pretty good um, in single A. And I was kind of surprised he didn't get promoted at all this season. Mm-hmm. He threw pretty well. I mean, 104 strikeouts is really good. Um, and he keeps getting better, keeps getting better. He was a two way guy at Arkansas. 
Arkansas, and now he obviously solely pitches, and he just keeps improving. That velocity continues to improve, and he has pretty good stuff. And, you know, they were very quick to move Cavalli up, even though yeah. he, you saw him struggle um, in AAA there at the end of the season. So I was surprised that you didn't see him move up. But um, maybe it's just a matter of, you know, continuing his development and not rushing him along. But that kind of surprised me with the way they seem to be frivolous in um, promoting pitchers this in this minor league season. Yeah, I mean, well, you're also comparing a first-round pick to a 15th-round pick. So, I mean, the, the, the expectations for Cavalli might be a little high. I mean, you know, Cavalli is expected to be a part of this rotation as soon as this year. Evan Lee probably won't be, but that doesn't mean we can't see, he can't make a big jump. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I think that's a good point. But then also, you know, maybe you're a little bit more careful with somebody who's your first-round pick. You know, yeah. you don't want to rush him along. You don't want to, you know, hurt his ego when you – bump him up and he just got you know yeah it all around so so the nationals only added those two players they do have one spot open like i said 39 players on the 40-man roster that can mean a couple of things i mean mm -hmm. you know we're still in this weird offseason the cba doesn't officially expire until december 1st we're already seeing a, some flurry of moves being made i mean we're seeing guys sign with teams and you know nothing no major none of the big names are out there but we're seeing uh some other players signing other so contracts it's not like past off seasons where we don't see anything happen really until late january right we're seeing some small significant moves so the nationals have a spot open for that just in case but also i wonder and we talked about this as a possibility before amy could they possibly be eyeing someone in their Rule 5 draft and leaving that spot open to to select someone, uh, assuming that this draft happens in, in December? Well, with the C who knows with the CBA? But I think it's a possibility because we talked about how the Nationals don't really use this resource, if ever. Um, right. I think they only have like a handful of Rule 5 draft selections in their history and like maybe only one, if any, under Mike Rizzo. So... With this whole new direction that Mike Rizzo is trying to take this uh, minor league system, I know he has to be on the major league roster for the whole season, but if you get him through, especially during a season where you're not expected to compete, then you could possibly get a top prospect, not a top prospect, but a, a fairly good prospect that will now be a part of your system for a couple of years after next year. It's a possibility, and they have the option now with one spot being left open uh, heading into December. Yeah, I think it's definitely... I mean, I don't think it's off the table. I think if there's a year that the Nationals might kind of play around with the Rule 5 draft, this is going to be it. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really good opportunity to kind of fill in one of their holes with a guy that uh, you can get for a lot cheaper than going out and signing a free agent. Um, like we mentioned some of those names just a couple of weeks ago. So I definitely don't think it's off the table. I imagine they're, they're considering it. Um, leaving that spot open. Yeah. And as, a, as the, of the guys that could have possibly filled that spot that we didn't, uh, obviously not did not mm -hmm. happen, but people or players that we think that are, uh, were surprised that not, um, that weren't protected or could possibly be selected in the Rule 5 draft. Three names jump out at me. Uh, Jordy Barley, who was part of the Mason Thompson deal with San Diego uh, in July. Tim Kate, who was a fast-rising prospect, pitching prospect, and then Israel Pineda, who has been along for a while and uh, one of their top catching prospects. Now on the lower half of that, though, because of the additions of Caber Ruiz uh, and Riley Adams. None of those guys have really pitched too high, though. Pineda pitched at high A. Barley, I think, came over and only pitched or played at Fredericksburg, uh, so low A, and then Tim K was at double A this year. 
again, kind of tough for, you know, having not being too high up in the minor league system might be tough for a team to take him and then carry mm -hmm. them for I, I, maybe Kate because he has pitched at a higher level. Uh, let's see how he did. He it. just struggled this year. He did struggle he, this year. He, he had a, a bad year. So I think that kind of probably warned off a lot of teams mm -hmm. because it's just, yes, he did uh, play higher than any of right. those other guys. Double A, if somebody's pitching well at double A, you kind of feel confident you could carry them on your roster perhaps as a bullpen arm or, you know, whatever it may be. But he struggled at double A this year. Yeah, and I think 531 kind of ERA and 21 starts, only went 2-10. and 10. Um, The walkouts were pretty high. Strikeouts weren't great. Uh, only covered 96 and two-thirds innings. So, yeah, you're right. I think he, he's high up there, but the, the way he struggled this year, he mm -hmm. clearly if he had struggles in double-A, clearly not going to be able to carry him on a major league roster for a full 162-game season next year. So worth the risk of putting him out there. Um, Jordy Barley, I think it's just interesting because, again, you, you add, included him in a trade and mm -hmm. you leave him open, but... He's young. He's only 21. Actually, he'll be 22 on December 3rd. Um, and he only hit 205 in Fredericksburg. So it's only 33 games, but he didn't really flash too much potential uh, at, at, at that kind of... He stole 12 bases, which is which is good. A speedster infielder. Uh, played shortstop and second base a lot with Fredericksburg. So he's young, right. very raw. I don't think you can risk carrying exactly. him on a 40-man roster. The combination between being so young and coming over and not being able to really hit at high A or high A, right? Yeah. yeah. High A, I don't think you're, you're – No, sorry, it's low A. Frederick is low A. Okay. So, so the odds worse. of somebody, yeah, somebody taking you and keeping them, keeping you on the roster the entire season are, are pretty low. So I think that was a matter of maybe not that they don't value him and they, you know, that was – you know, a, a good asset of that trade. But I think it's just a matter of, I don't think he's really a risk of getting taken. And then Israel Pineda, the catcher, actually had a pretty okay season, hit mm -hmm. 208. I think the, the the Nationals really like what he brings defensively. He's one of, one of the more advanced defensive catchers. But at Arizona is where he really kind of flashed. He hit almost 309 mm -hmm. games uh, with a surprise. Uh, they are the, um, oh, I just remember this. Oh, man, what's their nickname? It's like Serga yeah, Seguros. Um But, you know, he, he, that's this is a case where you, you this is the risk you run of letting them play in the Arizona Fall League and then not protecting them. He had a really strong Arizona Fall League. He is a little bit older, I believe, because he, he's going to be 22 in April. Uh, he's been around for a long time, international signing out of Venezuela. Um, that's what makes him eligible to be drafted this year in the Rule 5 draft. Um, I, I don't know how much you... I have to go back and look, but I feel like catchers don't get taken too much in the Rule 5 draft because you're taking a young guy with a lot of less experience, and then you have to then, not only does he have to produce offensively, but he has to then catch a major league staff mm -hmm. when he has not caught above, what is it, uh, high A? Well, he's in high A with Wilmington all season. That's a tough that's ask a for jump. a young. That's a, that's a huge jump, especially for an important position like catcher. So uh, worth the risk right there. And also, you know, no offense to Israel, but the Nationals now have catching depth. So mm -hmm. if he is selected... I don't think he will be, but if he is, it's not going to kill the Nationals because they do have some depth at catcher now. Right, that means you have three, four catchers that you you know you have above him, so it wouldn't be a huge loss. And like you mentioned, the Arizona Fall League, you liked what you saw from him there, but that's only nine games and not a big enough sample size, mm -hmm. I think, for any team um, to to justify that. Yeah, um, let's move over to the guys that 
did the rest of the guys that played in the Arizona Fall League uh, because we talked about Casey Pineda. Um, let's start with Jackson Rutledge because he is a guy, of course, that is now the, I think, number three overall prospect for the Nationals. No, he's not. He is. Yeah, he is three. Number three. Yeah, yeah uh, number three overall because with the graduations of Josiah Gray and Cabo Ruiz, he's number three overall prospect, formerly number one. Of course, a number a first round draft pick from a couple of years ago, uh, the year before Kate Cavalli. He really struggled this year. He had a lot of injury issues that did not allow him to progress as much as Cavalli and as much as the Nationals would have hoped. Um, he kind of struggled in Arizona Fall League, but he played. He pitched in three and a third innings of relief in the championship game mm-hmm. for some surprise and pitched really well. He he got a, he struck out the side in his first inning. Um, kept the game close, even though that the surprise ended up getting losing. I think eight nothing in that game. Um, so a strong finish to a disappointing season for a top prospect in Jackson Rutledge, uh, but that could be a sign of something more to come next year. Yeah, I think you know after Jackson Rutledge struggled so much this season, he made thirteen starts uh, and finished with an ERA over eight. Not so great, um, but like you mentioned, so many injuries, and that's kind of been his story for his entire time um, in the Nationals organization. So the Arizona Fall League was kind of a good chance for him to to get back on track and, and kind of work out of that funk, and he didn't necessarily do that until the end, but mm-hmm. like you said, maybe that's a, that's a good sign that he kind of fi- was figuring some things out uh, uh, throughout those, those you know, couple weeks, and is starting to get back on track at the end and maybe at spring training you'll see a new and improved Jackson Rutledge but he's simply somebody that has to like get it going here. One of those things uh, in terms of, of improving for Rutledge uh, one of the focal points for him in Arizona was the development of his off-speed stuff mm-hmm. and we know that he has the potential to be a high profile uh fastball pitcher I think his fastball was registered between 95 and 98 miles per hour with surprise but he Got real good use out of his slider in Arizona, and that was, I think, what the Nationals were hoping to get out of. He also got some good use out of his changeup. His slider was between 82 and 85 miles per hour, apparently, and um, he got five of his seven strikeouts in the championship game, came off that slider. And he was also getting some swing and misses with his changeup, which was sitting between 86 and 88 miles per hour, which is a good sign mm-hmm. that he's finding success with those off-speed offerings so that he's not just fastball heavy, especially if we're expecting him to make a leap to hopefully at least double A mm-hmm. next year at some point. Yeah, that's been kind of the big thing for Jackson Rutledge, I feel, for the past couple of years, too. So the Arizona Fall League is no better time than to develop develop those pitches. And another guy who, you know, kind of had the opportunity to use the Arizona Fall League to his advantage was Jackson Clough, mm-hmm. and he did really well. He hit really well in the Arizona Fall League, 342, uh, with a 432 on base percentage, 456 slugging, 887 uh, OPS in those 22 games. He won defensive player of the Arizona Fall League of the Year, which is good. Only one error do- during those 22 games. And, you know, the bat's kind of been the concern. He had trouble uh, getting it going this year in double A. So you kind of liked what you saw from him, and he used it, you know, t- use the Arizona Fall League to make some improvements. Yeah, Clough's an important prospect to uh, keep an eye on because we talked about the lack of infield depth with the Nationals, and he played mostly shortstop this year. Um, I read somewhere that he actually had a pretty amazing grab in the championship game for surprise. I didn't, I didn't actually see the highlight, but I read that he was pretty strong defensively continuing that thread. So the fact that his bat came along, I mean, again, it's a small sample. It's only a month of playing baseball, but you are playing against other top prospects, prospects. that are that national that uh, you know other teams are trying to get some more innings or at bats, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. So it's not like he's playing, you know, 
just low A guys so the entire time. Um, he's a guy that the Nationals are really going to need to see take a step forward at Double A at some point, maybe even advance to Triple A next year. He'll be twenty four. He's six foot one eighty five. Um, he's ranked currently as a nineteenth overall prospect in the Nationals farm system according to MLB Pipeline. And again, with the lack of infield depth, especially now with Trey Turner leaving. And there's no sure thing at shortstop in, in the immediate future, in the long-term future for the Nationals. Jackson Clough now has an opportunity. If that back can come along, he's got speed on the base pass. He stole a handful of bases. Um, if he can come along and provide that, show that he is a, a future prospect that has some real potential, and you know he could be their in-house solution to a long-term shortstop in the future if they choose not to get you know, approach that position this offseason with the big splash in free agency or something like right. that. Right. When we're talking about developing your your own guys in your system already, Jackson Clough is one of those names that comes up because so often during the season it was like, well, who would they even promote if they had to, you know, um, if they had to promote somebody in, in that middle infield and Jackson Clough just hasn't even been close to ready. So hopefully mm-hmm. he takes a big step in double A this year. Maybe we see him get promoted to triple A and he can kind of be the, like you mentioned the in-house um, solution in, in a few years to come. And another guy worth noting is, is Cole Henry. Yeah. who's the number seven prospect in the national system right here. And that right-handed pitcher, he missed a lot of the 2021 season due to injuries as well. So the Arizona Fall League was a chance for him to kind of take a step um, and, and get back to the way he was doing. And, and he did really well. He finished the Arizona Fall League uh, second in strikeouts with 30. He had a 332 ERA in his 19 innings of work. So good stuff from him. Um, and he got what you know you kind of want to see out of a guy who's coming back from an injury yeah. in the fall. Yeah, he only made 11 appearances in the minor leagues, and two of them came uh, in the rookie uh, Coast League down in Florida uh, as he was rehabbing his injury. So not something, you, you know, a tough setback, setback for him, especially after a year where you don't pitch. Uh, because of COVID, uh, but he's a, another guy that was drafted. Um, he was a second-round pick in 2020 out of LSU. Nationals have very high expectations for him, and he's one of those prospects. You mentioned how high he's ranked. You know, he's that kind of that second tier after Cavalli and Rutledge of prospects that's supposed to be pitching prospects that's supposed to kind of revamp this pitching depth because the Nationals obviously really prioritize their pitching. They want young guys. They want to have a lot of young arms in their farm system that they couldn't either use as trade pieces or bring up and be part of their future rotations themselves. And Cole Henry's part of that, you know, one of the first guys in that second mm-hmm. wave maybe after Cavalli and Rutledge. So it was good to see him kind of bounce back in Arizona after an injury-plagued regular season this year and obviously not pitching last year. Uh, and that's another guy like kind of like Clough, who's kind of now setting himself up to have another strong start, if healthy, uh, to the 2022 season. Yep. Another reliever we saw um, in the Arizona Fall League, Todd Peterson. He pitched pretty well, finished with a 261 ERA and 10 and a third innings of work. Anybody else that you want to um, point The only out other player would be, would be Drew uh, uh, Milas. I always Milas? Drew Milas? Or Milas? We say this every single time. Mm-hmm. Milas, Milas. Let's say Milas. Drew Milas, uh, another catcher. He's part of that catching depth. Uh, you know, he's a little, ranked a little higher uh, than Israel Pineda. He's number twenty overall on the uh, per MLB pipeline. It, you know, that's a guy where whatever he can, whatever you get out of him, mm-hmm. that's good. You know, it, it's just another bolster to the farm system. Another person, but you know, you already have. Uh, you know, it, he was brought over at the trade deadline as well, but you have. Uh, Kaber Ruiz and Riley Adams already kind of in the waiting. Uh, so, you know, he would have to make, you know, astronomical right. 
leaps and bounds changes and improvements next year to like kind of go on the radar. But he's worth noting that the Nationals sent him. I think it was more so because he came over the deadline. Nationals want to get some more eyes on him, get some more bats, uh, see how he manages the pitching staff. It helps that the Nationals had a couple coaches, including the manager for this team and surprise in, in the Arizona Fall League. So they have some eyes on him. And, and we know now that the Nationals are really focusing on also improving their catching depth. Now that they have it, now it's about developing these guys. And if he can turn into something, whether that be a trade chip or a solid backup at some point, that's what you're looking for out of, out of yeah. Milas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Milas. Uh, yeah, always good to get more looks on him. And maybe we'll start to see this trend of not only the Nationals having catching depth, but also being able to develop their own guys. And hopefully, you know, he can fit into this bill and we'll only see improvements um, with him in years to come. All right. Well, that's going to pretty much do it for the prospects edition of this podcast and talking about the additions to the 40-man roster, the guys at the Arizona Fall League. Of course, we'll have a lot more conversations about prospects moving forward throughout the offseason and, of course, once spring training gets underway, seeing about, talking about these guys, that's really all people are going to want to talk about uh, for the next couple of seasons, except for one guy. <laughs> and that guy wears number 22 and plays right field. <laughs> Juan Soto finishing second to Bryce Harper in the National League MVP voting last week. Um, that was kind of expected, right, Amy? We, yeah. we, we figured it'd be close. It was pretty close. Um, uh, Juan received six first place votes, finished with 274 total points. But Bryce Harper takes home the hardware with 17 first place votes and 348 total points. It's clear that the voters uh, prioritize Bryce Harper's power numbers to, against uh, Juan Soto's uh, on base numbers, mm -hmm. um, which isn't to say one's better than the other. It's just that's how the voting went. And it's interesting that you brought up, I guess now two weeks ago, Amy, that you know how do you perceive the MVP award and how, and I always say, how do you define valuable? I think, you know, it's something against Juan. He of course was the most valuable player on the nationals, but Bryce Harper just proved to be a more valuable player to a team in the Phillies that was close to competing near the end. Exactly. I think that was key. It's so hard to tell what these voters value or prioritize. Obviously, you know, they value a whole lot of different numbers, but I think that's what makes the difference is the Phillies real were in that NL East race down the stretch and it was Harper uh, that was carrying them. Whereas when Juan Soto really came on the second half, the Nationals had sold away half their team and they were way done and out of it. So I think that makes a difference um, as far as your value to your team. And then of course, Harper slugging, um, you know, they probably saw as more valuable than Juan Soto's ability to get on base. There's so much that goes into it. And I'm sure everybody that was voting, you know, you sit there and it probably just gives you like a million headaches, yeah. um, you know, going back and forth and back and forth. But I kind of think this is how we thought it was going to shape, shape out. But I think it's good. I mean, credit to Bryce Harper. That's incredible. Yeah. Two MVP awards in, you know, how many years. Um, I think that is really great signs for his career to come. But more importantly on this podcast, I think that says a lot about Juan Soto's career to come. Yeah. And he's certainly, I think, going to get in there before it's all said and done and probably a few times. Yeah, if you're watching along on our Facebook page or YouTube channel, the graphics showing comparing Juan Soto, Bryce Harper, and the, th and the third place finisher, Fernando Tatis Jr. If you look at those numbers, if they're bold and italicized, they led the major leagues in those numbers. If they're just bold, they led their league. And you look at Tatis's, the 42 home runs are great, but in terms of the other sabermetric numbers and OPS and on-base percentage, doesn't really match up with Juan Soto and Bryce Harper. 
uh, Juan Soto having a higher war per baseball reference, uh, but the uh, weighted runs created plus for Bryce Harper, 170, of course, led the majors in OPS and slugging percentage. Six more home runs, fewer RBIs. I, I think it's like it's interesting that, you know, an argument maybe for Juan Soto would be for the second half of the season, which is when he really took off, he was on a worse team. And he still put up these numbers. I think it'd be very easy to pitch around him than it would have mm-hmm. been for Bryce Harper. And Bryce Harper put up these numbers. But I think you could say, well, Josh Bell had a really strong start, exactly, second half. Yeah. Um, Ryan Zimmerman, whenever he was in the lineup, provided some protection. There were some guys at the top of the lineup, like Lane Thomas, couldn't guys on base. So you couldn't really pitch around him. Um, but I also think it's super interesting that you look at Bryce Harper and Juan Soto. Both of these guys really made their cases in the second half of the season. Mm-hmm. Going into like the all-star break, it was all, you know, we're talking about how's Juan Soto going to fix his swing? Is the home run derby going to hurt his swing? Right. What's going on with Bryce Harper? Um, and, and they both really took off for the last two, two and a half months of the season. I think that's pretty cool that it was basically a, a race between these two guys starting in late July. It, it, yeah, that, it, that was, that's what's kind of crazy about it, and that's why it makes a difference kind of the teams that they were on while the Phillies were still competing and the Nationals were out of it, you know, in that second half, uh, which is kind of crazy. Do you think that, you know, those last few games when Juan Soto kind of fell off, do you think that makes a difference? I don't know. I mean, he would have had to done something, like, really special to put himself, you know, hit a couple more home runs, you know, make close that home run gap mm-hmm. between him and Bryce, maybe eclipse 100 RBIs, uh, you know, if he was able to close that slugging or OPS gap. Uh, yeah, I mean, it could have been, but, you know, he Not was it, he difference. was was entering the last week of the season or weekend against the, the Red Sox. He was lead, He was the National League uh, batting leader, right? Mm-hmm. And then he fell That's off and Trey Turner took it. Weekend. So maybe if he wins the batting title, it might be a little closer. I, I still think Bryce takes home the hardware, but maybe the, you look at the voting and he uh, and maybe it's a little closer than good. we thought. I Who, some... I mean, let's. I'm not taking shots at anybody. A Philly writer putting Bryce Harper. I mean, excuse me, Juan Soto seventh on the ballot. That's a little ridiculous. How does that, that happen? I mean, anybody with two eyes has watched seventh? any of these guys all season. That's just. And the other thing is, you know, the ballot comes out. We see who votes what, and that's real. You, cold, have, to, buddy. you have to know how it looks being a Philly writer right. and putting Bryce or Juan worse, Soto right. seventh. Yeah, even worse. But. I digress. So anyways, <laughs> um, I, I thought it was interesting that you saw there was a lot of people, you know, obviously those two guys finished top three, uh, but it was interesting to see how they kind of ordered them and, and Juan Soto finishing second. But like you said, you know, it, this is a sign of, you know, he's what, 23 years old. He just probably, I think he just turned 23 mm-hmm. uh, in, in, October. In, in October. So, you know, he, he's already finished second for National League Rookie of the Year. He ha- finished fifth last year for MVP, now second for MVP. This is going to be a yearly thing for him, of course, you know, assuming he's healthy and, and plays, you know, the appropriate amount of games. Um, but Nationals fans have something to look forward to. And, and Mark Zuckerman had a really good article on MassInSports.com kind of chronologizing the Nationals' history in the MVP race over the last decade. They've had someone at least receive votes mm-hmm. in, I think, each of the last 12 years in the MVP, which is impressive and that's a tribute to the team i mean i know it's an individual award but that's a tribute to mike rizzo and the scouting and the player development and how and and the learners putting together a competitive team every year um and that they have someone that is at least on the ballot for mvp and some finishing top five of course bryce harper winning it in uh, in 2015 Uh, that's something that not a lot of franchises can say yeah exactly i mean if you have 
the best, you know, a finalist for the, in theory, the best player in the league, that's a really good sign for your mm-hmm. organization, I think, um, for years to come. So we will see. Uh, we'll be talking about Juan Soto and Juan Soto's potential contract or where Juan Soto will end up uh, probably for a long time, the next few years at least. But he certainly has a bright future ahead of him. Brendan, not uh, not our producer Brendan, but Brendan on Facebook asking why wasn't Trey Turner considered for MVP? I think he finished fifth, so mm-hmm. he was. He was. He got some votes, um, but he was not a top three finalist, but he did finish, I believe, fifth. Um, Max Scherzer also got votes, so there's guys with Nationals ties on this ballot, um, which was, uh, you know, it's a good, you know right. I know that Mike, I mean, Mike, Max and Trey did not finish the season with the Nationals, but... They you know, were both half know. of the, half of those campaigns came in yeah. in the curly W hat, so that's something to be said as well. All right, just to wrap this up real quick, it's a topic that we're going to be talking about for years to come. Of course, we can probably do an even more in depth podcast about it, but it is timely because of two reasons. One, an article that was written in the Washington Post by Barry Sherluga a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And now, two, the breaking news that came on before we went on air, Amy, of Wander Franco's extension with the Tampa Bay Rays. Juan Soto, do you try to get a deal done now? Do you throw $500 million for 15 years at him uh, right now? Uh, yes or no? Yes. I think the Nationals have to mm-hmm. if they have a chance of keeping him here. But I don't think... He's go- it's going to free agency. That's the point. So, but I think, especially after um, what his agent Scott Boris Scott Boris his comments at the the general uh, managers meetings were you know he said first we need to see that this team is all in and going to compete um, and then Juan Soto can talk about you know a, a contract and I think. We're not going to know, really. They're not going to, you know, be all in. Obviously, they're not making any big additions this offseason until they're competitive again. It's going to be probably two years until we know that. Uh, So I think it's pretty clear that this is going to free agency either way. But if you're the Nationals, you have to put out your best foot forward. And I think that's, you know, really their only choice at keeping him. Uh, We knew, we kind of knew that. I mean, look, yeah, this conversation, it, you know, it's it's fun to have, but at the end of the day, I think you're right. It, it doesn't really matter because there's only, there's less than a 1% chance that Juan Soto doesn't go to free agency, right? Like, it, right. he's going to free agency. That's just what happens. But with the timing of everything, I think the question being, should the Nationals throw 15 years and $500 million at him right now? Why not? What's the harm in doing that right now? If he says yes, great. If no, well, then... You kind of expect that anyways, and you at least show good faith that, hey, you're at least going to be serious about this when the time comes. The harm with, you know, the risk, the reward far far outweighs the risk because what, you know, he he says no. Okay, you're expecting that anyways. What if he says yes? Then that could prove to be a bargain by the time he actually hits free agency. Right, and here's the thing is, you know, we're we're comparing it to the, the Rays deal with Wander Franco. I mean, you've seen way more of a, track record or production from Juan Soto um you're not it's not as big of a risk as you're taking with uh with Wander Franco so that's kind of I think they're the Nationals are obviously past that point that the Rays are with Wander Franco I think that if they were probably going to offer him a big contract they would have done it and I think you'll probably either see that more and more where they're going to offer them like right off the bat at 20 years old um a contract like that that we're seeing with the Rays and Franco or 
it's going to be, you know, these guys are going to reach free agency, which we're seeing more and more, especially with Boris guys. So final details coming in about that Wander Franco deal, just for reference, for those who don't know, sounds like it's going to be 11 years and $185 million with a 12th year option. And the total value could jump up to 223 million. So possibly 12 years, $223 million for a 20 year old who doesn't even have a full year of service time. That's the largest contract given out by the Rays franchise. That's the largest contract for an MLB player without a full year of service time. Um, and like you said, there's a way more of a track record for, for Juan Soto. Look, I, I under, I, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm not, I'm never gonna be put in the situation, <laughs> but I would look, you look at Ronald Acuna Jr. That contract looks bad for him right, right. now. Whole, eight years, $100 million, I think it was, back in 2019. He could be making close to half a billion dollars right now and if I, he had waited. Mm -hmm, and I think that's you know why you see less and less guys signing deals like that so early on where they let it let their their careers progress or let the years progress, let other contracts get done. Um, and then you're going to be making a whole lot more if you reach free agency. But then you also have, you know, these young players coming over to this country, looking for an opportunity, trying to make an, and then, you know, they, they have, and you it know, can pay off. And right, that's how pay, you might see it here they, with Wander Franco. It's, much different deal, like you mentioned. Than yeah, Akira. they have their own families to take care of. You know, mm -hmm. they they see they. I mean, I will never see that money in my life. They probably oh, never see that money in life. So it's like, how can you balk at that? But, also, in comparison to like real life, like yeah. that's a lot of money. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> um, but we're just comparing to what comparing it to what guys are making now. It's right. Crazy. So my, I guess my question is like, what, I mean, if they're willing to offer this to this now, why not just take a bet on yourself? go through arbitration you'll make you know you know by the time he's arbitration eligible the floor for him could be like 15 to 20 million per year for three years and then cash in once you actually hit for agent. i mean that's, i know it's a long time to wait and like it's hard to pass up 223 million dollars right now like i wouldn't do that right now right. but i'm also not you know wander franco who has a lifetime of baseball to play left to him and could be one of the best players that we've seen in this generation but i he doesn't have a Scott Boris in his ear being like, don't do this because you can make all, you can make almost double that. We're, we could possibly be looking back at this for 12 years, 223 million. The fact that he's not, he's barely, he's not, he's not making half. He's not making a quarter billion dollars. Right. Juan Soto could be making double of what he's going to be making by the time he signs a deal for even same amount of time or a little bit longer. I, it's just like, it's, 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 yeah, it's a tough, it's tough because really you're gambling either way, you yeah. know, like it is baseball. It's a sport. Injuries happen. Right. You know, you're taking, Look at Acuna. right. You're taking a big, big bet on yourself. If you wait, try to reach free agency. And then, you know, you, you're three years out. You don't know what's going to happen between now and then. Um, so you're taking a gamble, but you're also taking a gamble. If you settle on a deal now, mm -hmm. um, when you could probably get a lot more money in three years, when the, the price keeps upping and upping, like we see it every single year. Yeah. So it, it's tough either way. Same thing with the organizations yeah. taking a gamble now or waiting. Um, it, it's so hard to tell what these guys, but that's baseball. Yeah. I, I don't think if the nationals were to do this for Juan Soto right now, I don't think that's much of a gamble. I think you've got, exactly. you've got mm -hmm. a sure thing. Even if God forbid he does get hurt, like Acuna, like he tore his ACL. We know he's going to be back and still be one of the best players once he's healthy again. Right. I mean, it's just players rebound from ACLs better than they ever have nowadays. It's, it's not like a career-ending injury. Right. And he's still so young. He still has so many years ahead of him. Same with Juan Soto. Even if there is something like an injury happens, 
you're making an investment for the long term. You have them for 14 more years, theoretically. So it's like, it is kind of a risk, but Juan Soto is as close to a sure thing as you're going to get. So what if, do you think if it is like 15 years, 500 million, there's a chance Juan Soto takes it? It's, I mean, it's up to the player. Scott Boris always says, I work for the player. Whether, whether that's actually true or not, he'll always say that. But he always said, he'll always defer to his players, which, he, which that's what he tells us. But if, you know, it's but like an for offer, years you now, can't, I mean, you know, that's like, that's as good of an offer as you're going to get. Right and now. it's in theory, the team you want to be with. Right. But, you know, once, and, and, and Scott, like you said, Scott has mentioned that Juan Soto's priority is winning. He wants to make sure that the team is committing to winning. And right now they can't definitively say that they're going to be good in two or three years. So why not? I mean, like. Well, if I'm one, I would wait and see, see how this pans out, see if Cavalli pans out, see if, you know, Carter Keboom, see if they sign someone big in free agency this year or next year, whatever it may be. Show them that they're willing to spend the money because when, when it comes time for him to get his, they, will, they won't hesitate. So then when are you, when, if, do you start thinking about trading him? The, the season before his last season. So that's in two years. Two years. Because he's got four seasons left. Mm-hmm. Seasons before. So in two, after two years. And if, then by then you're hoping you've, you know, you've put that offer out there. He doesn't take it. If we're putting this in, if we're putting this rebuild reboot in the sense of Juan Soto's remaining years under control. Mm-hmm. So there's four years left. If not, if you're not ready to compete by halfway through that, I think you need to start tabling it. If guys aren't panning out, if you're not at least hovering around 500 competing day, like you having a small shot, not a great shot, but a small shot. Like if by year three, you're not ready to make the leap, like, okay, we could possibly make a push for a wild card spot. Then I think you need to consider because then that leap between the fault, the last year of his, of his, of his control, like you're not going to be competing for a world probably, right? You're probably not going to be competing for a world series during that fourth year, unless you make a significant leap between years two and three. Mm -hmm. So if it's the third season and you're not still not competing where you, to a level where you think or Juan Soto thinks that you should be, that's maybe where you can consider trading him. And then you get a lot of prospects back because he'll have kind of the same with Trey Turner. Now, I think that's wrong. I wouldn't do that. But that's, if you're asking me when I should start thinking about it, that's when I would think about it. If it it comes down to him saying, you're not going to compete. I don't really want to play here anymore. You're going to, you have to get what you can get. Juan Soto doesn't, I mean, I hope he doesn't say that. Juan Soto doesn't have anything to gain by saying that though, because then he will get traded (laughs) and, and then he'll hit free agency though, but like you, you don't get, you don't gain anything by saying like I want out because you're not competing. Well, that's kind of what he's. I mean. Well, no, he's saying that you, I want to see them compete, but he will, mm-hmm. he will never come out and say like we're not competing. I want out. Oh well, no, no, right. No. He has nothing to gain from that. So it is an interesting conversation. Of course, that conversation we'll be having for the next couple of seasons, um, and off seasons. Maybe we'll touch on it again this off season um, as more contracts get dished out to players that are, could be comparable to Juan Soto. Uh, we see contracts and figures that could be comparable to what he could possibly get. You know, every, that's the, that's the thing. Time is against the Nationals mm-hmm. you know, side because every offseason, every contract that's signed, that raises the bar or raises the floor, I should say, for Juan Soto's eventual uh, big free agent deal. Yeah, but I guess that only, you know, pushes them. They said it's going to be a reboot, not a rebuild. So I guess that's, you know, all the more reason to, to get this done. Uh, even sooner. That is, that has to be the goal. I mean, you want to compete. I know you want to win championships, but 
right now in the short term, your only goal in my mind should be to show Juan Soto that you're going to compete in the, in the near future and, and make sure he's a national for life. Show me the money. Show him the money. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Mass on All Access podcast. Good to be back. Thanks to Brendan Mortensen for working the, uh, the controls behind the scenes. And if you can follow the Mass on All Access podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and or SoundCloud, that would be much appreciated. We really appreciate everyone subscribing, tuning in, commenting along, giving us their feedback, being a part of the conversation. Of course, you can catch us also every week on the Mass and Nationals Facebook page and YouTube channel. We really appreciate you guys becoming a part of the show. At Amy Jennings News for Amy on Twitter, I'm at Bobby underscore Blanco. You can give us a tweet. Give us your thoughts about the AFL guys, mm-hmm. uh, the Rule 5 guys, uh, Juan Soto's future, anything you want. We're always happy to chat with fans. We love your interactions all off-season long. Have a very happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Enjoy the holiday. Uh, and we will see you next week with more off-season topics leading into the happiest time of the year, the, the off-season. The, the holidays are here. I'm so excited. Uh, we're, we're looking forward to it. So we'll see you again next week. Thanks for tuning in.